So we are in chapter 18 of Tanya. And we are, if you are the, um, the printed text, it's on the right-hand column of page 76 in my book, with the sentence that begins, nevertheless. Okay. So yeah, the idea is that there is a love which is inherited, a love of Hashem. And the question, of course, is how could love be inherited? That's the, what we're dealing with. And also, what is the origin of love? What's the basis of this love? And we start off with the fact that the patriarchs, by virtue of being the divine chariot, they brought, they merited to um, give a godly soul to all of their descendants. Now, those godly souls vary in a variety of respects. We mentioned how they have different stages, the nefesh, the mere survival state, ruach, where it's thriving, and the shem, where there's self-transcendence. We spoke about the fact that there's come from the 10 spheros, which means there's different dispositions to each soul. And we also spoke about the idea that there's different worlds, whether the soul primarily relates and connects to Hashem through the performance of mitzvahs, would be asiyah, the through prayer, which is Yitzira, through Torah study, Bria, or through prophetic experience, would be, which would be the world of Atzillus. And every Jew, even the most lowest level Jews, have at the very minimum the lowest of the lowest souls. Now, up till now, we've been discussing how these souls are different. Now, the author wants to turn his attention to what about them is all the same? What about them is the essential characteristic that, we, that is going to be the basis of this love that we say is innate within every Jew. So, starts like this. Nevertheless, since the latter is of the ten holy spheres, it is compounded of all of them, including the chachma of Asiya, meaning the wisdom of the world of action. Okay? So, the lowest level soul, if you recall from last week, lowest level soul we said was a nefesh of a nefesh of malchus of the world of Asiya. And let's just remember the translation of that. So nefesh is when the soul is in which state? Survival, thriving, or transcendent? Surviving. Surviving. And so what would nefesh of nefesh be? What do you think that terminology would indicate? If nefesh means the stole is in a mere survival state, it's trying to, you know, survive in this world, what would it mean to say it's a nefesh of nefesh? Just getting by. Barely getting by, right? It's at the bare minimum. It's, it's the line right before it goes out, okay? And then it's of malchus, and malchus we spoke about yesterday, yesterday last week. That's a soul whose temperament is primarily one of duty and obligation to Hashem. Okay, so this is a soul that is barely surviving in its relationship with Hashem in this world. And its whole sense of connection is based on a sense of duty and obligation and manifests in the world of action, meaning manifests simply through observing the practical mitzvahs, observance of halacha. So we're talking about the most undeveloped soul possible. Okay, that's a kind of the extreme case. And he says, nevertheless, since such a soul is 
comprised of the ten holy spheres, it is compounded of all of them. So what does that mean? There is a there's a there's a there's an argument in that sentence. If you had to break down the argument, what is what what is he arguing? What is it? What is the logic there? I know I'm making this class more actively involved now, and you have to think. Anybody? Okay. The sentence says, since one fact and then another fact, meaning one fact is the basis. So one fact implies or logically necessitates us to have a second fact. The first fact is that it's comprised of the 10 holy spheres. So, and because it's comprised of those spheres, it's compounded of all of them. Okay. So what does that mean is, a, is an indication of holiness? If we're talking about something being holy, even if it's one thing, even if it's one dimension, because it's holiness, it has to include, in some sense, everything. Okay, so let me explain to you what, the, what this means. Okay. Holiness, as a general rule, means something that is connected or um, in alignment with God. And a fundamental characteristic of God is that God is one. So if you can take any quality, any aspect, any attributes and wall it off and isolate it, it, it can no longer be holy because now it is standing divided from everything else. Okay. So let's think of it just a simple example. Um, no two people think alike, right? They have different personalities. Okay. When people get together, if they cannot see how, even though the other person doesn't look, think like me, doesn't approach things like me, if they can't see the legitimacy in the other perspective, then we can rest assured that their coming together is not an act of holiness. Because that would, that, that, that's just instantiating the division between the two. Holiness always means that there has to be a unity. So, any coming, any, anything that's holy and somehow has to incorporate, allow, or be integrated with things that are other or opposite to itself. That is a basic principle of holiness. Okay. Um, if you want to think of a more biological example, okay. In a body, if you take any one organ and it tries to function entirely on its own, okay that makes the body unwell, right? Every, every organ only actually serves its function when it, when, it, when it works in conjunction with other organs that function differently than itself. Does that make sense? And then you have a whole organism, okay? Now, in holy, what that means is that in any aspect of any of the divine manifestations, it can never be that it's pure. So let's say God's kindness. If God's kindness was pure kindness, it would not be holy. In order for it to be holy, what does it have to contain? It has to contain 
every other possible divine attribute. There has to be some element of wisdom. There has to be some element of judgment. There has to be some element of compassion. There has to be some element of stubbornness. All of those things have to be integrated together within the kindness. Otherwise, the kindness can't be holy because the kindness would be in isolation from everything else. And that would sow division. Right? And so as a, as a, as a fundamental principle in, in Kabbalah and then is used in Chassidus in, in a variety of interesting ways, any aspect, any attribute, any level has to actually contain a microcosm of everything. So if the soul is a holy soul, comes from the 10 holy spheres, then regardless of how low of a level it is, that it's only a sense of obligation to God, it's only on the mere survival level, it's only regarding to physical mitzvahs, blah, 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 blah. It has to, in some sense, contain some aspect of the other dimensions of godliness, of the other ways that godliness is manifest. And the one that's going to be of especially special relevance to us is the one that is called in Hebrew chachma, which is usually translated as wisdom. Okay, we're going to leave blank for the moment what chachma is. Okay, so the argument goes, regardless of, what, of how low the soul is, even the lowest soul contains a, the corresponding element of chachma, whatever chachma is. Now, then he says in another point, wherein, so that chachma is called chachma of malchus of atzilus, incorporating the chachma of atzilus, which is illuminated by the actual light of the ain't of blessed be he, as is written, the Lord has founded the earth with wisdom and you have made them all with wisdom. Okay. Now, we get a little more Kabbalistic here, and for clarity purposes, I'm not going to go through all the levels. But the idea being is that the lower levels contain higher levels. So let me explain to you what, what, what this means with a few analogies. Okay. Let's say that you have a brilliant idea. Okay. I know that some of us are very self-loathing and we can never imagine having a brilliant idea, but for the sake of this illustration, let's all imagine we've had a brilliant idea, okay? If you then communicate that brilliant idea to someone else, does it cease being a brilliant idea because you've now it's gone out of your mind and into their mind? No. No. On the other hand, do they appreciate it the same way that you do? Maybe it's not as brilliant because it lost its purity. It depends okay. on their interpretation also, if you expressed it well. Right. So what we have here is we have that the, uh, the underlying idea, right, it's brilliant. But because it depends on your ability to communicate and their ability to comprehend, right, it's not exactly the same, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So, but it's also wrong to say that they don't have the idea. I mean, you did, after all, communicate it to them. Okay. And so there's an idea that what happens between the different spiritual worlds is that it is not simply that you have one spiritual world and another spiritual world, but the spiritual worlds are, so to speak, in communication with each other. And so what is true and present in a higher world ends up becoming manifest and clothed in a lower world. 
So the way he's putting it here is that the Chachma in the highest world, the world of Atsilus, whatever that means, is actually present in the Chachma of the lower worlds all the way into the Chachma of the world of Asiya. And so the, the, the upshot of this whole thing is that regardless of where your soul is from or what kind of soul it has, since it's holy, it has an element of Chachma of whatever world it's from. And since all of the worlds are kind of layered within themselves, it has some aspect of the Chachma of the highest world, the world of Atzilus. Now, why is it so important, and this is, this is the key element, why is it so important to establish that every single godly soul of every single Jew since the time of the patriarchs has an element, some tiny aspect of this thing called the Chachma of the world of Atzilus? What is so special about the Chachma of the world of Atzilus? And the answer to that is, it's illuminated by the actual light of the Ain Sof, blessed be he. That's just a fancy way of saying Hashem, saying God. Now, let's put this in perspective for a moment. If I have a, if I have a body and I have a soul, okay, let's start there, just basic body and soul. Is it correct to say that my body is having a relationship with my soul? Is that a correct way of thinking about it? Why not? Because they're not, they're two separate beings, but they're also, they work together and they can't really exist without the other. I'm saying the soul can like in heaven, but not on the earth really. Okay. Right. So the idea is that it's more like the soul inhabits the body rather than like the soul having a relationship with the body. Does that make sense? Okay. And if you have a godly soul, regardless of what level you have, it has an aspect of this thing called chachma, whatever chachma is. I'm bracketing what it is. I will get to it eventually. And whatever world of Chachma, whatever level of Chachma your soul has, it contains some aspect of Chachma of the world of Atsilus, whatever that means. Now, what's critical for our purpose is what inhabits Chachma of Atsilus? What does it say in the text? The illumination of the light of insight. Okay. Those of you who've learned a lot of Hasidus get all freaked out that it says light. What does light mean? We're going to ignore the light. We're treating light as Ein Sof as a, um, a, a, as a package deal, okay? For reasons that I'm not going to elaborate on right now. So if we're going to treat the light of the Ein Sof as just a fancy way for saying God, which it is, then what is present inhabiting the Chachma of Atzilus, whatever that is, and thus really inhabiting you. God. So, is it that you, on the, from this perspective, that you are in a relationship with God, or that God is somehow inhabiting you? God is inhabiting you. Now, that's a very different way of thinking about a relationship, a connection to God, isn't it, right? It's not that 
I and God, we get along great. I love God. I want to be close to God. It's much more like there's something about me that allows God to actually, for lack of words, inhabit me, take me over, be present within me. Okay? And it's that element that we need to now understand and we need to examine and we need to make sense of. So he concludes like this. Thus it comes to pass that the Ein Sof, blessed is he, is garbed, as it were, in the wisdom, that, that's just the translation of Chachma, of the human soul, I don't know why the translator soul said, okay, whatever, the soul of a person, of whatever sort of Jew he may be. Okay, so that means at least when it comes to this aspect of yourself called Chachma, that is not a way to connect to Hashem. That is the place where God actually resides within you. Now, the question I want to focus on right now before we go forward is, um, what is Chachma? We're going to get to it later in the chapter, but I don't want to leave you hanging. What is Chachma? Um, what is, this, what is this characteristic of Chochmah such that we can say God is present within it? Right? Now, we're, again, like I said, we're going to get to it a little bit later in the chapter more in detail, but I want to go into a little bit of it right now so we're not, like, totally lost. Right. Would someone care to describe God, please? Unity. What? Unity. Unity. Well, I mean, unity just means one, right? Yes? That's what unity means? It means something that has, that's one, as opposed to many? Okay. This is one water bottle. See? It has unity. So... It and God are basically the same, right? One water bottle, one God. Are, are we okay with that? Or do you have a problem with that? How can a water bottle be godly? I'm not saying it can. I'm just saying, if I take the description of God as unity, and unity just means that, there's some, that it can be treated as one as opposed to many, well, the object in my hand was one water bottle. So it has some, it can be described as a unified entity. It's, there's something, there's, there's unity in the water bottle. And so if, if unity is a description of God, so then it's, it, and the water bottle is described as unity. So I guess God and the water bottle are quite similar in some sense. No, they're not. Well, then we are forced to make a choice, aren't we? Either we have to say that the bottle doesn't have unity or God doesn't have unity. But if the bottle and God both have unity, then there's then they're similar at least in that respect. So which one do you guys want? That the water bottle and God are similar, or that one of them doesn't have unity? One of them doesn't have unity. Okay, which one? The water bottle, because it doesn't unite everything that exists. It's just uniting itself. Okay, can you tell me something that does have unity other than God? 
Not that I can think of. Okay, that's, that's actually a much more profound statement than you think. Okay. The reason is God is unlike anything else. And if God is unlike anything else, then anything that is an accurate description of him would only describe him. And the problem with that is you can't, if, if the only, if you can't describe something in your mind. You can't think of something unless it's in some way similar to other things. So when you describe anything, what you're basically saying is in what way it's like other things. But if there's nothing like God, then there's no actual way to describe God. And if there's no way to describe God, then you can't actually think about God. Because when you think about something, when you, right, when you conceptualize, you're thinking about in what ways it is similar to other things. And so and the way the Zohar puts it is that no thought can think of God. Not just your thoughts, thoughts in general can't think of God. Or to put this in a little more profound way, thinking about God is as ridiculous a proposition as holding God in your hand or um, folding God and putting him in your pocket. God is not that kind of a thing. So, why is it that God can live in Chachma? If God is not like anything else. I always learned that Chachma is like the light of inspiration, but you can't necessarily express it in words. And mm-hmm. that's why it's, it's like Hashem, because you can't, it, you can't compare him to anything. Well, but the problem is the light of inspiration, although you can't put it into words, you, event, you do put it into an idea, which, and that idea you eventually put into words. But where does inspiration come from? Or let me ask you a different question. What kind of state of mind do you have to be in in order to get inspired? Or if you prefer, I'll ask it in the reverse. What kinds of states of mind prevent you from getting inspired? If you're thinking of survival. Then, you, then you're not getting inspired? I mean, I don't know. Think about it. When, when have we been, when have we, when have we got an, 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 uh, an, an inspirational insight? What kind of state of mind do we have to be in for that to happen? What kind of state of mind prevents that from happening? You have to be like open-minded or receptive. You can just just stop there and just say open. That's good. We'll stop there. Open. That makes sense, right? The more open you are, the more it's possible. Okay. Do you... Do you also need to be like not content? I can't think of a better way to say it, and it sounds like a negative yes. thing. Yes, yes, but I, that's not the element I want to get at. That's much more necessary for inspiration, for an insight, and that's not actually going to help us here because God is not an insight. Okay, but you do need to be open. Now, way back when there was an actual living flesh and blood Mayanote, when people used to come to Mayanote. Um, I gave a class that was a Thursday night class. And part of the the whole appeal of the class was that I would say very, very controversial things. Okay. That 
would make any normal person like think that that's really off and wrong and that can't be right. Such an extent that um, one time I said at the beginning of class, the topic of today's class is love. And um, one of the girls said, no. And I said, why not? And she says, because you ruin everything. Don't ruin love. Now you'd think if she's in this class and I'm ruining everything every Thursday night, why is she still coming to class? Because she's actually one person at a time. Um, because there's an element of truth of truth to what you're saying. Okay, and she has what relationship to that element of truth? She's open to it, or she's closed to it. She's open to it. Hmm. Right now, does the truth necessarily fit your preconceived notions? Is the truth necessarily comfortable? Is the truth necessarily even something you can understand? Okay. Chachma at its basic, most basic, we're going to get more details into it. Chachma is an openness to the truth. Chachma is the part of the soul that accepts the truth for what the truth is. It senses the truth for what the truth is. Does Chachma care about anything? What does Chachma care about? It cares about one thing. What's the one thing Chachma cares about? The truth. The truth. Does it care whether it understands the truth? No, because if you don't understand the truth, does that make the truth less true? And if you do understand the truth, does it make the truth more true? If the truth, does it care whether the truth is useful? If you can't utilize, I see your hand. If you can't utilize the truth, does it become less true? And just because something gives you an advantage, it actually, that makes it true? Okay. So Chachma is the part that is open to the truth because it's the truth, not for anything else. Okay. Now, someone had a question. Now you can ask your question. Thank you. Um, all the different grass, all the different, like, graspability methods that you're talking about in terms of truth, like utilizing it and understanding it, whatever, all those things are just ways that we contain it. So what you're describing is an entity that can't contain truth. So then it sounds like it's not even having, it's not even, because truth is almost impossible, or God in this case, is impossible to have an interaction with, how is it, it sounds like a very, antithetical creation because it's grasping something it can't grasp and it's interacting with something it can't interact with. So what is the nature of that? Like, well, maybe it's not grasping or interacting. And that's actually the point. Maybe the only way to have the truth is to allow the truth to just be without trying to grab hold of it. 
without trying to tackle it, without trying to grasp it, without trying to just being open to it. If you want to think about it like this, right? If you open a window, the sunlight shines in the room. Does that mean now I mean the room has a handle on the sunlight? It can, it grasps the sunlight. It can bottle up the sunlight and take it where it wants. It just means the sunlight is now present in the room because the room was open to the light. The, the room has some kind of element of space that can contain. That's right. It, in other words, what is it about the room that allows the light to be there? It has something compatible with light, space. What light is it? Space. It has space. It has space, it has openness, it has emptiness. So what is Chachma? It's the part of your soul that really tries to understand, really tries to achieve, really cares about connecting to others. What exactly does Chachma contribute to your soul? Nothing. That's right, nothing. But a certain amount of nothing a certain amount of empty space. And what can then reside in that empty space? If there's nothing blocking the light of the sun, then what happens? Where is the light of the sun? It's in that space, right? This is why Chachma is very counterintuitive because you can't think about so much about what Chachma is. You much more have to think about what Chachma isn't. It isn't trying to understand. It isn't trying to make sense of. It isn't trying to grasp. It isn't trying to hold. Because all of those things, as you, as you put it, they're kind of paradoxical. It's like, what is Chachma? Chachma is like having empty space for the light to shine in. Except the light is not physical light made of photons. The light is the truth. And the truth with a capital the and a capital truth. Capital T, capital T. Meaning, not the truth of arithmetic and not the truth of gravity and not the truth of morality, the truth of God. So essentially you're describing a compatibility between two elements that isn't like a quantifiable compatibility. Right. It is not. In other words, it's. Uh, in other words, I'll give you. I'll give you an example of what it is like later. But right now, I want to tell you what it's not like. It's not like holding something where you need a physical hand that is able to touch the physical object, and the size of the hand has to be able to large enough to wrap around the object. Right. It's not like that. So then, what's the distinctive point between chachma and God? It almost sounds like they're the same thing now. What do you think the point of the Alter Rebbe is right now? To try and tell us how Chachma is not like God? Or to try to tell us how Chachma actually is in some way really is like God? Because if Chachma is just the emptiness where the truth of God resides, then really what is the difference between the Chachma of your soul and God? Is there a difference? I mean... There must be a difference because they have different words. They're called by different things. If they have different names, they're different, but it sounds like they're really the same thing. 
in, so someone tell me, what sense are they different? Think about the analogy of light. If light is shining in, an, in, in a space, right? What is the difference between the light and the space? So you're God's the source, whereas the Chochmah and a human soul is like the receptacle for these. Right, right. That's, that's the difference, right? It's that God is the thing being received and Chachma is the thing receiving God. But what is there to Chachma other than its receptivity to God? What other characteristics does it have? Like, you describe emptiness but what, by what it allows, not, not its own properties. And so what the Al-Jabba is trying to get at here is that our soul, it's not that, it's, oh, it's not that it's, it, it, it has special powers or abilities. It has this element of, of Chachma, of the highest order, which is the world of Atzillus, where the Chachma is, is absolutely open. It, there's some little crevice of, every, of the soul of every Jew, which is totally open to God. And if it's totally open to God, then God resides there. Rabbi, I have a question. Just one second, let me finish that. Such that, such that in as much as God resides there, it really on a practical level, it's hard to distinguish God and the Chachma. You only have to do it conceptually that the Chachma is what's receptive, what's receptive to God and God is what's being received. But beyond that, in as much as the Chachma is receiving God, there really is no practical difference. Much in the same way, we'd say there's no, that as long as your soul's in your body, it's kind of foolish to say, oh, that's the soul or that's the body. I mean, your soul's living in your body, right? What happens to you? You're in your body. Yes. So the chachma is the, sorry, the chachma is the room in this analogy? Yes, the chachma be the room. Okay, someone else had a question. So are you saying that chachma is just an idea? No, no, chachma is not just an idea. You tell me what an idea is and I'll tell you how it's different from chachma because people use the word idea differently. So I don't want to guess what you mean. Um, okay, never mind then. Why? Because, like, I don't want to get into a whole debate with you. <laughs> you don't have to debate. That's why I asked you. You just tell me what you meant by, by ideas so that I can answer your question. Like, because you're saying that Chachma is just being received. It's just part of your soul. It's just, like, one of the, at, at, one of the parts of your soul. Right. So we don't know what a soul looks like. Correct. So it could just be an idea of what our soul could be. We don't know what our souls look like. We don't know anything about our souls. All we know is that it's godly. And you're saying Chachma is just being received by God. Okay. So I don't know what my soul is like. And you may or may not know what your soul is like. I'm not going to guess. But that's where the whole idea of prophecy becomes important, right? People who are prophetic, they do know what souls are like because they direct experiences of the soul. And the prerequisite for being a Hasidic Rebbe is to be prophetic, such that you have direct experience of souls so that when you write books like the Tanya, you're not just theorizing what you think it's like, you're actually describing from your firsthand experience that you know what it's like, okay? So this would be kind of like if I were to describe to you a mongoose, 
I've never actually seen a mongoose. I've read about mongoose. So I could like, I could take what I've read and try and explain to you what I understand. But somebody actually did see the mongoose and they wrote down what they know about the mongoose from their actual observations. Similarly, what the Alter is doing is he's describing, I have seen your soul and I have seen the Chachma within it. And this is what it's like. And then Rabbi Kaufman reads it, tries to do his best to understand it and explain it to you. So what I am describing is an idea of what Chachma is to the best of my understanding. What the Alter Rebbe is doing is trying to describe Chachma given his firsthand prophetic experience of what it actually is. Okay. So there's a part of our soul which is just open. It's, like That's the best the word, actually. It's just open. It's not trying to hold on to anything. It's not trying to connect to anything. It's, allow, it's, 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 it's allowing God to be there by not allowing anything else to get in the way. Like, again, the way you allow light to be in a place is don't let anything block the light. Okay. Rabbi, can I just ask a, ask a quick question? Go for it. Isn't there something blocking the light, i.e. like the wall of the room? Well, I'm saying that's, if, if, I'm saying if the, if the window in the room is open, then that's where the light goes in, right? And then the light is in the room to the extent that, you know, there's nothing blocking, you know, so if you've got like a, a bookshelf in the middle of the room, then that'll block the light and there'll be a shadow, right? But wherever it's not being blocked, the light is there. Right. Okay. Okay. This is actually very important. So, but that doesn't mean God is necessarily permeating your whole being. God is just in one tiny little crevice of your soul called the Chachma. Regardless of whether your soul is predominantly Chachma or only Chachma because it's holy and it has to have some element of Chachma, but it, there is in every Jewish soul some tiny crevice which is like an open window, or even if it's an open, an open like little keyhole, where the light of God actually shines into the soul, and God is present in that soul, at least in that little tiny spot. Okay, so one thing we need to know about chachma is chachma relative to God is like an empty space relative to light. Because it's empty, the light just occupies it. Because Chachma is open and receptive, God just occupies the Chachma, inhabits the Chachma. Okay. Now, that's half the equation. We now need to look at the other half of the equation. In turn, the soul's faculty of wisdom, again, that's the translation for the word Chachma, together with the light of the Ain of blessed be he that is vested in it, spreads throughout the entire soul, animating it from head to foot, so to speak, as it is written, wisdom gives life to those who have it. Okay? So now what this is saying is, what is the relationship of Chachma to the rest of the soul? So we spoke previously just now about the relationship of Chachma to God. What is the relationship of Chachma to the rest of the soul?
Anyone seen the text? What does it say? Faith. It gives life. It gives life. Okay. So, if the chachma is enlivening the rest of the soul, and God inhabits the chachma, then what's enlivening your soul? God. God. And now your soul is where? Let's just run through the argument. Your soul is enlivening your body. So what's enlivening your entire being? God. God. So given that, we would expect you to have a, what kind of connection with God? Creator and created? Like creation? Well, no. If your soul is receptive, if the chacham of your soul is like an empty space where God resides, and that's what enlivens the rest of the soul, and the soul enlivens the body, then what's really, then what is really enlivening you? Let me put it to you like this. Let me put it to you like this. When you say your soul is enlivening you, is that like a battery that's plugged into your body to make your body function? Or does that give your body, that makes your body have any meaning, have any worth? Like your whole way of, your whole, your whole being is really the soul. The body's just valuable because it allows you to express your soul, right? So enlivening, uh, let me maybe back up one step before that. What does it mean to enliven something? Give energy to? No, no. To enliven, th think, think about it like this, okay? Um, if you have uh, an air conditioner and you, and you give energy to the air conditioner, right? So it's working. What are you doing to the actual air conditioner? The actual physical air conditioner by plugging it in and using it. So it's getting energy. The electricity is flowing through it. It's working. What are you doing to the actual um, uh, air conditioner? You're giving it meaning, right? Because then without turning it on, it doesn't have a purpose. Okay, that's true. But I don't know if that's giving it meaning. I would say that's probably enabling you to have its meaning. The meaning was from the design of it, right? You just can't access its meaning. But there's a, there's a problem. Um, when you use an electrical device and you get energy, it actually starts to destroy the electrical device, right? Why is it that if you use an air conditioner over a while, it starts to break down? Because what is the electricity actually doing to it? It's wearing it down, okay? There's friction, there's heat, okay? In other words, when you apply energy to something that makes it work, you're also simultaneously doing what to it? Killing it. You're slightly, you're killing it. Now, giving life doesn't kill things, right? I mean, that's just like a, a kind of definitional thing that enlivening doesn't kill things by definition. So when, you, when, you're, when you're doing something with, when you're, when you're putting energy in something, you're imposing on it. You're pushing on it. You're pulling on it. And there's a subtle element of violence in energy. 
Life is something different. Okay. Um, think about think about when you're when you're um, people in your life. Okay. Are there people in your life that when you're around, you feel like you're more your true self, more capable of doing the stuff that you should do? Are there people like that in your life? Okay. So being around those people, Hasidus would say, makes you feel more alive. What does more alive mean? It's not just that you have, it's not something is putting energy into you, which can have this element of violence. It's, 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 it's making you be yourself. Okay. There's this, there's this, the, 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 a good way of thinking about this in English is that we have two words. We have thriving and surviving. What is survival all about? Preventing self-destruction. What is thriving about? Versus survival. Flourishing. Yeah, what, what does that mean? Describe it. So I'm not just not being destroyed. I'm rather what? Being successful. Successful at what? Whatever it is you're doing. No. There are plenty of people who are very successful business people and are not flourishing. They're not thriving. In right? Your, in your avoid, this is sham, maybe? That's true, but you're being religious, and that makes me nervous, because I want, I want a description without being religious. It's what does it mean to thrive? What does it mean to flourish? It doesn't just mean to be successful. I can do something and be very successful and still be, and still be withering and dying inside, right? It's like the best of you comes out. Ah, very good. I am succeeding at being my true self. That's what it is to thrive and flourish. And so enlivening means making me be my true self. Now, making me be my true self doesn't involve self-destruction, now does it? That's kind of like... No. Okay. So, the soul, what does it mean the soul enlivens the body? The more your soul comes through the body, the more you're really you. The less your soul comes to the body, the less in some sense you're really you. And you can feel that difference. Well, what does it mean that something enlivens you? It makes you be more yourself. Your true self. Some people, some people, they're very good at things and they can succeed at them. But doing them does not make them be their true self. They don't, they're who they, they're, 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 who they are in an ultimate sense doesn't come out that way. That actually can be very painful if you're extremely successful at a particular task and yet it does nothing to actually bring out a truer, deeper sense of who you are. That can be extremely painful because everyone admires you. Everyone looks up to you and you feel like a shallow, empty shell, hollow. 
So not only you have the hollowness to deal with, you also have the fact that nobody seems to validate it because like, why wow, you're so successful. And you could have conversely, everyone could look at you as a completely unsuccessful person, but for whatever reason, the way you live life is fully actualizing to the maximum of whatever you can at that stage of bringing out whatever is truly makes you, you who you really are. And so you're thriving and flourishing and you might not get a lot of respect for that. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so that's what we mean when we say enlivening. So tomorrow we'll continue the discussion, but the idea is that it's not like, it's not like a battery or an energy source. It's not something you're dependent on. That's not, that's not the idea. The idea is this is the ingredient that brings you into yourself to manifest your true self, to thrive and flourish. That's, that's what it means that something enlivens you. Okay, someone had a question. All right. So now, oh, you do have a question. I do. Was, can I ask a question? Yes. I don't know if you're going to want to answer it because it's like a little bit tangential, I guess, but um, this is not intuitive, really, because like the way we think about like I guess because it's not about physicality, but like the life is not physical. Life is very important. Life is not a physical notion. Energy is. Principle of entropy really applies almost one hundred percent of the time in all seeable things, and this is exactly the opposite of that. So it's correct, not intuitive correct, at all. Correct. 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 I think the principle of entropy is just not true. No, the way what 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 there's a whole. Sub, there's a whole analysis in, in Hasidus, but basically when defining life, one of the key characteristics is, is anti-entropy. Right. So whereas, whereas physical, physical things, which means matter and energy, tend towards decay, right. life it has the opposite tendency. It tends towards self-actualization and flourishing. Right. So all things must die isn't true in terms of this principle. All things which are physical and try to maintain life through their physical integrity eventually fail and die. But life doesn't die. Would you argue that if someone is living their life with energy that functions as a battery instead of energy that functions in an enlivening way that has death to it? Well, I wouldn't argue that. Chassidus says that explicitly. Chassidus says that's death. Oh my God. You can, you can be a walking, talking human being and still be as far as Chassidus concerned as dead because dead means devoid of life. Mm. Yeah. That's really and, you'll, and, you, and you'll feel that way. It feels hollow and shallow and things just pass by and things are a drudgery and you're trying not to have things fall apart and there's no like, there's no, there's no, there's no, 
there's no joy, there's no optimism, there's no, there, there's, there's no sense of, of, of things having anything intrinsic worth to them. Yeah, yeah, you could be dead without, without actually decomposing physically, yet. There's, there's a very famous Hasidic uh, saying, which is that we ask God for life and not death. And the question is, why do you ask for life and not death? If you ask for life, it's obviously not death, because we want to clarify. By alive, I don't just merely mean I'm not dead. I want something more. I want the actual true thing of life. People haven't just killed, right? Or as a friend of mine once said, is some people aren't, aren't dead because they haven't been hit by a truck yet. I mean, they're not really living. Yeah. And the fact, this is the meaning of the verse, according to Chassidus, where, where Hashem says, look and see a place before you, life and death, and choose life. It doesn't mean you know, keeling over and like having your body decompose versus not. It's like, what kind of an existence do you want to have? One where everything is about manifesting this truer version of yourself, right? The thriving, the flourishing, right? The intrinsic worth, the joy, the optimism, the building, the self-perpetuating, or the things that tend towards entropy and constantly need to be maintained before they all fall apart. Which one, which kind of existence do you choose for yourself? Your soul is not the battery to keep your body going. Your soul is the source of a true being. And when the more you're in touch with that, the more you, the more you, you feel like you're thriving and flourishing. Now, what the Altareb is saying is something fascinating. Is the soul actually has something that enlivens it called the Chachmah. And if Chachma is what houses God, then really what's enlivening you is God himself. And that is a wild proposition that needs to be explored, which is what he does in this chapter and the next. All right, we're going to hold it here and we'll continue, Bez Hashem, God willing, tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, Rabbi. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.